0: Good evening. Well, we were in the last chapter of our study on Thessalonians, so if you'll just turn to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. I kind of have an unusual title tonight that may not make sense, so I'll explain it a little bit better, but The phrase that came to my mind as I was studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, or the word, it's only a word, it's called soft hands. Soft hands. Because Paul is focusing on a group tonight, and he gives biblical advice for those in the Thessalonian church that had become very idle lazy, weak in their faith. And and part of the reason was that there was false teachers there who were trying to undercut the Apostle Paul's message about the coming of Christ and undercut the validity of who the Apostle Paul even was. And they were teaching them stuff like Christ has already come um, or he's going to come soon sooner than you think you've either missed him or you need to be ready for him to the extent where you don't have to work anymore and so multiple people who were highly misinformed as new converts because they were listening to this unbiblical information got soft. Their hands became soft. And they would go up on mountains, unemployed, and wait for the Savior to come. Furthermore, they depended on their congregation, their fellowship, to take care of their needs. So they wouldn't work They were troublemakers, and they'd grown soft in the Lord. That's why I call this soft hands. There's nothing about us as believers that should equate to laziness, or being weak, or soft. Now don't get me wrong, we're we're told in the scriptures that in our weakness we are strong. So we have tremendous times of weakness. But I'm talking about people that are giving up. People that are checking out of the race. Paul's going to refer here tonight about the race of faith that we're in. He refers to it frequently in his passages. Talked on Sunday about the race that he mentioned and that was in Galatia. But people were dropping out of the race. But people were running the race and getting exhausted at the race of faith. they just pulling off to the side and sitting down, if you can imagine that. And so Paul is encouraging this church for those that were strong and those that were working and for hard for the Lord and those that were promoting the gospel despite the immense hostility and affliction they were going through. He encourages them in this last chapter. But he also gives a very, very stern warning to the idle. The people who have decided to sit down in the race of their faith. And he was very, very strong with them. He's been strong through all of Thessalonians. I think he had a really nice balance of actually grace and truth. Grace and truth. You have to have both to be balanced. In other words, there's a time when, well, we see it in the life of Christ. He even said of them... Self, or John said of him, he came full of grace and truth. So there was times when the Lord Jesus was so kind and his touch was so gentle and healing. He was gracious. He ministered to the untouchables. He gave hope to those who everyone else would cast out. He died on a cross. Not for anything he did, but for what we have done. But then he was very strong. The same Lord Jesus that said, turn the other cheek, also turned the tables and made a whip. He was balanced. Do you know that in the book of Mark? It says that uh, this was after the triumphal entry. Um, that he went into Jerusalem and he walked into the temple courts and he looked around and he saw, uh, you know, people selling doves and making money off the poor and so on and so forth. And he looked around, went inside the te- temple, and he actually stood there and made a whip. Did you know that? That's a good sermon right there. He made a whip. His anger was in complete control and he methodically grabbed some straps of leather, knew what he was going to do in advance, and weaved a whip in the temple. Then he turned the tables. So the same one that said turn the other cheek knows how to turn the tables as well. That's balanced Christianity. So uh, we're going to see... in. Paul tonight, how he's very, very kind and very gracious to his people and even gracious to those who had dropped out of the race who actually, well actually they needed the left foot of fellowship they deserve the left foot of fellowship and actually Paul says that he says get them out of the church get them out of here but don't be unkind to them they're still your brothers. Whoa, that's good balance. Well, Paul had traveled to Thessalonica, and he was there probably for a couple of months. It was only three Sabbath days in when he was teaching, when the, the hostile, uh, unbelieving Jews ran him out of town. They were very, very hostile to him and the converts that he left behind. And these young believers, it's actually amazing, because they'd only been in the Lord a month or two. I mean, they're not, their teeth are not even growing out yet. They're still, you know, infants. And they're going under severe trial already. And so Paul encourages them over and over and over again. And he talks to them and gives them hope that Christ is coming. All of this suffering you're enduring, all of this suffering you and I are enduring, there's going to be a day of relief, and it'll be worth it all. you got to believe that. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus, yeah? Has to be. And so many people came to Christ. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of pagans, non-believers, Greeks, came to Christ. They were converted to Christ, and a few Jews were. So there was a lot of wonderful changes, but the outcome of that also was there was more anger towards the Apostle Paul and his people. So let's go to chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 1, and we read that he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. And so Paul is transitioning now. He had just gotten done talking about the second coming of Christ, what it's going to look like, what are the symptoms or the signs of the times that we'll kind of know that it's near, although nobody knows, even Jesus doesn't know, so why are you trying to figure it out? we just know he is. And so Paul is transitioning now and he's saying he's going to give his final thoughts, but they're more in the way of warning and encouragement, warning for the idol, encouragement for the believers that are going through severe trials. And if that's you tonight, be encouraged. And so he says, "Finally, brothers, pray for us." So he begins his letter by saying, "I'm right where you're at the great apostle Paul is admitting his need in his trial and crisis, which were far worse than these young converts, that he depended on them to help pray for him. When he says finally, it's kind of like these are the ultimate thoughts I want to leave you with. Please pray for me. And this is what he asked them to pray for. He said, pray for us, Paul and his associates, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And actually, that's a picture of running a race in the Olympian Games. He refers to that picture frequently in the scriptures. And so when he says, pray that the word of God speeds ahead he's basically saying pray that god's word runs fast like a man or woman would do around the track and that it would be honored and what he means by that is not only the preaching and the teaching of the word would go out quickly but that it would go out victoriously now Even to this day, if you were to go to Corinth, Corinth is still there, which is 50 miles out of Athens. And that's where he was at for three years with the Corinthians. He's got two books that he wrote to them, Corinthians 1 and 2. They're a very carnal crowd, I might add, really pagan. But a lot of young converts. They had what they called the Isthmian Games. We have our Olympian games. They had the Isthmian games that the Corinthians would participate in. And the track and field was right there in the center of Corinth. Okay, And they would have these games and so on. Well, when we went on a tour of Corinth, very, very nicely intact ruins still, big columns, beautiful. Uh, we went with one of our pastors, one of our st- teachers in Bible college, who was an archaeologist. And uh, he explained to us, they had a kind of a high, lifted up platform. And he said, that was where the judges would sit after the winners of the race would go before him and they would place that wreath around their head, a wreath of victory. And they were honored victoriously. That's what Paul is saying. We pray that you continue to move the word of God quickly and victoriously as you have already had happen to you. Look at the next verse. This is what it was when we came to you. It took off like a blaze of fire and you've brought glory to God and he's honoring you the work that you're doing despite your conflict. So anytime Paul encourages them, the last verse of the chapter is, is I pray that God gives you peace in every way and in every situation. And the implication is right in the middle of the conflict, not the absence of the conflict. Have you found that when you've asked the Lord to remove the temptation sometimes or the conflict, he doesn't do it? But instead, he changes us from the inside out through it. So all of this encouragement is in the context of the arena and the conflict. Not the absence of strife and trial, but in the middle of it. And so he says the word of God may speedily go forward and triumphantly I'll be glorified and you'll be honored as you continue to preach the gospel. And then he asked them to pray for something else interesting. Look at verse 3. Verse 2. I want you to also pray that we may be delivered. Another word for delivered is rescued. We may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, there was a lot of them in Thessalonica, and there was a lot of them where Paul was at when he wrote this letter, which I believe was Corinth. They were everywhere, just like it is in our culture. They were dark, insidious, hostile, bigoted, mocking the very name of Jesus Christ. And they were everywhere. And he said, I pray that we will be delivered or protected. They certainly weren't taken out of that scene. Through those that are evil and wicked. And we know that the G- Jesus said that in his uh, prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Keep us from temptation. And protect us from the evil one. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. People are everywhere like that. Have you noticed? Everywhere. We'll never be without them until we go into glory. Well, I mean, the thing to do, though, is to pray. Have you prayed? Are you struggling right now with the influence of darkness around you, either by way of your family, people you work with, your lovely neighbors, have you prayed? Have you asked the Lord to protect you from the evil one? To carry you out on his back of a burning building, so to speak. That's what Paul's saying. Please pray for us because it's very difficult. Very difficult right now in our life. And then he says, for not all men have faith. In other words, you know, contrary to what you're going through, I mean, a lot of you came to Christ, but you've seen the evil and the people that live this way, they have no faith. In contrast, look at the next word, but the Lord is faithful. In contrast to the faithfulness of the Lord, who can be trusted, who will protect us always, never take his eyes off us, There are evil and wicked people in our life who will never be faithful and never be trusted. He said, would you please pray for us? Now, it's interesting because in the first two verses, Paul's talking, he's asking them to pray for him and his disciples and associates that God would protect them from evil and that God would allow them to put the word of God out there triumphantly and quickly. Now he talks about praying for them. Look at verse 3. He goes from us and we, verse 3, to you. He says, but the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one as well. I mean, it had to minister to them because Paul is saying the same evil I'm up against, you're up against too. And just as the Lord establishes us and protects us, he's going to do the same for you. Boy, I had an experience one time. This was when I was a younger believer in the Bay Area. And uh, I've told this once before, I think, and we had kind of a, a singles college ministry and we were at this, it was, it was like an apartment complex that had a meeting room or a recreational room and there was probably 60 of us in there and we were worshiping and, and all of a sudden, um, uh, one of the men that had been in our, coming to our groups for a while and there was something different about him, but he started, you know, his eyes started rolling back in his head and he started acting really weird and interrupting and doing strange stuff. So me and another Christian brother escorted him outside. We went outside with him. And, uh, you know, we just started praying over him. We, we perceived that this, there's something's wrong with this guy. He, he's under some kind of satanic influence or something. And I'm not the type of pastor that sees a devil under every rock. You need to know that. But this man was different. And as we started praying for him, he started we're in a parking lot of an apartment complex with about 300 apartments. He starts screaming, blood-curdling to the top of his lungs, like he was wild. And we kept praying and praying and praying, and finally he dropped to the ground. I go, whoa. And he got up and he said, Where am I? Where am I? But before he fell to the ground, I'll never forget this, it sent it, it's made the hair stand on the back of my neck. As we were praying. He looked at me and his eyes were dark, evil, dark. And, and the message that I got from that guy's pupils, that's all I saw, was if I could, I would tear you to pieces right now and kill you on the spot. But I can't because Jesus is here. That's the message that I got. That's what Paul's talking about. The Lord will rescue you never had anything since and that's you know that was a hair-raising experience he will establish you and guard you against the evil one he will he will that's he's the only one the evil one's afraid of you know that already And we have confidence in the Lord about you. We have confidence. We've seen God working in you. He's going to continue to work in you. We have all the confidence in the world. We just want you to be confident in the Lord. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. Now, by the way, Paul says in this short 18 verses, three times that we command you to do this. Now, that's not a popular word in our day and age. But then, when someone had apostolic authority and represented the Lord Jesus, believers knew it, believed it, submitted to it. They knew God was doing a work. He said three times, I command you. That's a strong word, huh? Maybe that's why a big delegation walked away from the gospel. Because nobody tells them to do anything. Just like it is in Southern Oregon. (laughs) What do you know? Okay. And we have confidence that the Lord, in the Lord, they don't have confidence in them, they have confidence in the Lord that the Lord will establish them and strengthen them. And that's where our confidence lies. It doesn't lie in us. It lies in Christ. You know that. Paul said, um, he will, What's it? it's Philippians 4.13. Let's look there real quick. Philippians 4.13. I know it by heart, except for right now. This is exactly what Paul is telling them. Four thirteen. Where are we at here? Ah, I can. You could say the rest of it. I can do all things, not some. Not a few now and then. Not if I'm just in a good mood. I can do all things. So think of where you're at now. You know, another good title for this sermon could be, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. That's probably even a better title. Lord, I I don't think I can do this. Anything going on in your life right now where you go, Lord, I, I can't. I don't think I can do this anymore? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. He's just saying it in a different way right here. It's only through him. We can do anything through Christ. If he wants us to do it, he'll give us the strength to do it. Okay, let's go back to Thessalonians. That's a good one to memorize, even though I forgot it. I've been saying it my whole life, Christian life. Look at verse 5. So he's praying, he's encouraging these people. God will give you the strength, he'll protect you from the evil one. You will continue to spread the gospel victoriously. That is our prayer for you, that is our prayer for us. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfast in Christ. Love of God. When I think of the love of God, I think of the acceptance of God. I think of the fact that God is for us. Did you know that God is for you? Not against you. He's for you. Not against you. He's for you. God is. Through Christ. Uh, Max Lucado, in one of his books, uh, talks about this passage and he's given illustrations of what, what does it mean when God's for us. And he said, it's like um, getting the photograph of your child, a school photograph. Remember the big ones with the class, the classroom photographs. And, and the first person you see is your child. Your child. You're looking for your child. That's what it means that God is for you and for i and i've always said this about parents to me one of the traits of a, a, a or or i would call it a godlike trait for a parent let's say they have four kids a godlike trait for a parent is that all four of them feel that the mom and dad loves them the most that's how we're supposed to feel in the lord like we're special to him he says i pray that you're directed to the love of God, that you realize that He accepts you. He is for you. Never against you. Never. Oh, man, we have to see that. We have to get that. He disciplines us. He convicts us. But He's never not for us. So I pray that the Lord directs your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That means endurance. And it kind of flow together because once you really realize that God is doing a sovereign work in your life, in my life, then almost anything that happens to us, when we feel that accepted and that, and that God's that providential and he's allowing that situation... It should build us up to stand firm. The endurance of Jesus. Because this is not an accidental thing you and I are going through right now. No, There's no accidents at all about this, what you're going through. And so we have to see the love of God and then it'll make us stronger if we believe it. Now he jumps into a different subject matter. He commands them to deal with those in the congregation that are lazy and living in idleness. And this gets a little strong. It's good, though. It's good. Now we command you, that's the second time, brothers, he's talking to brothers now. He's not talking to the people of the world. He talked about them a little bit in the first few verses. Now he's talking to the church, the body of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one reason that he could command. Because when he did, it was always in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority, who gave Paul the authority to have this position. So he says, this is the name of Jesus, I'm telling you this. Man, he was confident, and he knew it. Listen to this verse, gang. This is strong. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. What does that mean? Any brother that has heard the gospel and walked away from it. Tradition and teaching, one of the same. We warn you as Christian brothers, if another brother has spun on his heels blatantly, To walk away from the gospel I presented to you. Now we're not just talking about someone that's just struggling with his faith or, you know, has doubts about some verses. We're talking about someone who is apostate, meaning they want nothing to do with the teaching of the gospel. And they're walking the opposite. They're running. In the opposite direction. He says, for that brother, I don't want you to have anything to do with him. That's pretty strong. Some of us, you know, we have a lot of compassion and we we care, of course, so some of us find ourselves running after him and begging and pleading. and, And there's a time when we don't do that. There's a time when we probably should, but there's a time when we don't as well. Actually, this section here, Paul is talking about boundaries and tough love. You know, Jesus uh, one time was approached by an attorney, a young attorney, and uh, the attorney said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And and, and Jesus... uh, uh, He will... uh, he said, what must I do to enter, uh, to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. He goes, well, I've done it already. I've done it all. I've obeyed all the commandments. And he said, really? Uh, okay, then why don't you do this? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He was very wealthy. The man puts his head down, walks in the opposite direction, just like we're talking about here, walks in the opposite direction. And let me tell you, first of all, what Jesus didn't do. He didn't say, wait a minute, let's renegotiate. Think about what you're about ready to do. Well, maybe you don't have to sell everything, just some things. Or why don't we pray about it first? You know what Jesus did? He let him go. And by the way, With that particular verse, when he first walked up to Jesus, it says that, and the Lord Jesus looked at him and loved him. Sometimes the most Christ-like love we can show is to let people go their own way. Jesus did it. So that's what Paul is saying. If someone is that belligerent, And that against the truth of the gospel and who you represent. Don't hang out with them anymore. There's a reason for it. We'll get to that in a moment. So that's what he's calling idleness is someone who stops following truth. They've, they've sat down along the racetrack and said, I'm done. And they go in a different direction. That's idleness. It's spiritual idleness. Laziness. Spiritual laziness, if you would. Verse 7. He gives a little more evidence. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. In other words, we weren't there that long ago. And what we want you to do is just remember how we lived among you. Not just what we said, but how we lived. We don't imitate what someone says. We imitate what someone does. And they were far more than teachers and preachers. They actually lived out their faith. And he said, the model that we're seeing in your brother... Going away from the Lord and the teaching is what we did. You saw it in us, remember? So he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. So that's another definition of idleness. It's taking advantage of the generosity of other people without doing anything for it. He said, when we were there, we didn't take anything from you. It'll explain that in a minute. Whereas there's people in the congregation that are depending on you to take care of their needs because they're sitting up on some hill somewhere waiting for Jesus to come. And they're walking against what we taught you, which he's going to elaborate on here. He said, we weren't idle, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, okay, We work night and day. So, you know, the Apostle Paul would teach and preach many times through the day into the evening. He preached in uh, the book of Acts one time where he preached way past midnight. And they had dimly lit candles and there was a young man sitting in the window. He fell out the window. Because it was past midnight he taught so many hours. So don't ever complain about us pastors here at Trail because... And then they prayed for him, and he came back to life. He died, and he came back to life. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. No soft hands there. Gospel work. That we might not be a burden to you. So Paul took efforts... To supply his own needs in the ministry there. Who knows how many hours a day he did between preaching and making tents. That was his job on the side. So they, he wouldn't be a burden to them. And he had already had complaints from the false teachers that he was in it just for the money. And of course, I've always said, if you want to get a career for the money, you don't go into the ministry. It's a joy. It's a delight. Verse 9, I like what he says, though. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul taught in many places. Do not muzzle the ox while they're treading out the grain. In other words, pay the people that are ministering to you what they need to be paid. That's just the biblical concept. Look at verse 10. For even when, now this is a really good one, and I'm going someplace with this. For even when we were with you, you remember we were with you, we would give you this command. That's the third time he's talked about a command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, what does that mean? If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's God's word. Now, he didn't say, if anyone is unable to work, let him not eat. Or if anyone is too sick to work, let him not eat. He's talking about a group of people in that church that walked away from the gospel and the church who are depending on the church for income and food. What he's saying is, for anyone who's not willing and refusing to work, they must not eat. I wish we had a question and answer thing here because, but but you know this is streamed and stuff like that and, um, but just ask yourselves why would Paul say that? That seems kind of cruel and mean, like. Oh, there's some reasons. And I've been a pastor a long time, and I can tell you what some of them are, if you want to hear it. Um. There's a difference between enabling someone and showing compassion to someone. Enabling, and by the way, this is most difficult when it's our own family. Enabling does for someone what they should be doing for themselves. Paul says, don't give them any food. They refuse to work. Let them work and buy their own bread. But if they're impoverished and they're working, and they can't afford bread, give them bread and help them. But for people who are unwilling, enabling means you're doing for someone what they should be doing for themselves. And the problem with that is they never get better and you get more exhausted. And you got to know that. Because some people take advantage on the fact that we're Christians. And we have a big heart. I was at a church one time. And uh, um, one of the pastors there, he's Italian. And he was the one that handled when someone came by and needed money to help pay rent or whatever. And he earned the name Guido. We called him Guido. Because he didn't mess around. So when people came in, he was very generous, but you couldn't get past him. Uh, he told me one time, if someone comes in, well, actually, we had a couple, that, and they couldn't pay their rent, but this had been the second or third time this has happened. We always look for a pattern. Supposed to be good stewards, right? You look for a pattern. Well, they'd come in three or four times, and they couldn't pay their rent. So, you know, what what that tells us is if you bail them out financially, that doesn't stop the bleeding. We're into stopping the bleeding. We're not into slapping band-aids, especially when the money has to come from the church. So he said to me, I'll never forget it, never give anyone everything they're asking for. Because you will be amazed at how creative they can get when they need to reach that cap that they need. And so that was a relief. So they needed 700, the church gave them two. The other thing is, is that mean? Is that, unself- is that selfish? Is that not like Christ-like? I call it wisdom. I call it brilliance. Otherwise, guess what? There'll be a fourth time they'll need $700. And are we really helping them? I don't think so. We're helping them get worse is what we're doing. And so one thing that's good to do too, so if you have family members that are you know, hitting you up or you have this situation and you got a big heart and you feel guilty more than you should ever, you just have a guilt thing going on. Maybe it's a sensitive conscience or whatever, but guilt plagues you. Something the Lord doesn't want you to have either. I tell them to come in, I go, I want to see your budget. What's a budget? Yeah, that's what I thought. So I said, no, we're not going to help you until I see what your budget is. I want to see where the, where the wound is, where the blood's going. They come in but and I go, well, you're spending $200 a month on smoking cigarettes. I mean, it's not that that's a sin or anything, but don't expect us to help you buy your cigarettes. We're more into helping someone that can get healthy. Go buy your cigarettes. See what I mean? Or a person with a severe alcohol problem, or someone that's on meth. Oh yeah, you're running short, no problem. Anyhow, I think the Lord wants us to be a little more prudent. Well, that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying if someone is able and strong enough and they're unwilling to work, how dare them come to the body of Christ and the Lord Jesus' church and live off the graciousness of other people. That's pathetic. That's what Paul's saying. And that's what we see from these idle people that are walking away from Christ. Okay, he goes on. Um, verse 11. So we hear that there are some of, we hear that there are some among you walking idleness. So, you know, Paul's going, Hey, the word's on the street. Word has come our way. He's hundreds of miles away. He's in Corinth. He says, word's gotten to us. I kind of like that. Just to say, we know what's going on there. Some of the people are starting to feel it. Some of the people are have your number. Some of the believers there have your number. They see what you're doing. I think that's healthy. For we hear... That some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, play on words here, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In other words, rather than going to work and earning an honest living that God is calling you to do and is honored by Isn't that interesting? The Lord is honored when we work hard with our hands. Honestly, that brings pleasure to the heart of God. Do you know that Ecclesiastes says probably three or four times, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, the two things that brings joy to a man's heart, is being satisfied with his work and completely in love with his wife. Two things. Over and over and over again. But satisfied with his work is one of them. That honors the Lord. He'll bring tremendous blessing if you satisfy your job. If you're not that satisfied, either get a new job or change your attitude. There's some streamlined counseling. Busybodies, gossipers, have too much time on their hand because idleness is the devil's workshop. So these people don't have time to work because they're so involved meddling. The word busybody means meddling. They're so busy getting involved where they shouldn't be involved and getting in the middle of people's lives. They don't have time to work. They're not busy workers. They're busy bodies. And that's an offense to Christ and to the church. Verse 12 Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I just want to let you know this is from the Lord. To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So if you have any family or friends or anyone that's stuck, there's your verse for them. Do your work. Quietly or peacefully. Live an ambitious life. Mind your own business. And make your own living. I just think that's great stuff. For some reason, I think we live in a culture we have to apologize for that. It's like, what? You know how many jobs are open out there? You know how many employers... In every vocation you can think of, can't find people to come to work? That should say something about our culture. Verse 13. As for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Well, I appreciate that because you know, when you're helping someone that doesn't want to help themselves, it is exhausting exhausting here's a word from the Lord for you I'll try what Paul tries the next time you keep trying to help someone that will never do what you say won't take your advice even if you're trying to help them tell them I'm done I'm not done with you, but I'm done helping you. I can't help you anymore. That's probably the godliest thing you can say. I'm done. You remember the prodigal son, his father, you know it broke the father's heart when he cashed in his inheritance right up front, which nobody did in those days. The father was more than generous, which is a symbol of God, of course. And that boy went away off the riotous living and took money that he shouldn't have taken. Yet that father never left the porch. That father let him go. My son, one time, Joe, he was seventeen. He said, "Dad, um, I got a friend in his parents. Like they're so wealthy." And and they give him everything he asked for. You should see the car he drives. He's just, they're so rich, and he gives him anything he asked for from his parents, they give him. And then he said, but he has no respect for them. And I said, no, why do you think that would be, Joe? Because they give him everything he asked for. By the way, if you do that to a 14-year-old too, I mean a 4-year-old, give a little 4-year-old anything they want, they could stomp and scream at the cash register at Fred Meyer, and after the ninth time, you give them a little piece of chocolate. That 4-year-old, that cute little 4-year-old will be a monster at 14. Mark my words. I hope. Some of you laughed. I'm hoping you're not laughing because you're that monster. (laughs) Okay. All right. Back to the text, verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow tired of it. Keep doing the good work that you're doing. Keep saying no if you have to say no. Don't draw a hard line where you completely um lose this brother. But then he says something harsh again, I think. Look at the next verse. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter. First he said command, now he's saying obey. If anyone, this includes us, because we're Christians and we're here and we're reading his letter. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed now what does he mean by that there's a big difference between having a relationship and a uh, making a decision in a relationship where the person feels ashamed Big difference between that and shaming a person. We're not talking about shaming a person. Shaming a person is belittling, condemning verbally, calling them names. That's shaming. That's devastating for any of us. Paul's talking about something different. He's saying if you pull back, that the person may feel ashamed. That has to do with, in a way, I've seen this happen before in the church. When someone is isolated, the Lord starts dealing with them and they take it really serious in terms of what the church has done? Why would they step back? And it starts impacting them. And in many, many cases, people come back and they're restored to the fellowship. So a shaming leads to repentance. Shaming leads to devastation and heartbreak. A shaming makes a person think Do I need to make some changes here? So note the difference. Paul's not in the shaming. But he is in to having people of God that are being led astray step back and take note as to what they're doing. And hopefully, always Paul talks about them coming back into the body of Christ. Always. Look what he says next. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now look at the verse 15. Here's where the grace comes in. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's the grace. Like, don't land on him with all fours. Step back. Get out of God's way. Let the Lord work in his or her heart with the possibility of them coming back and being restored. But don't go so far as to regard him as an enemy. He's your brother in Christ. You see? Truth, grace, truth, grace, truth, grace, truth. There's a balance here. Paul's not asking for people to be hateful or unforgiving. He's asking them to use wisdom in the relationships in the church. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, and he's writing to a church that he loved, but a church that was also in trouble because two women who were leaders in the church couldn't get along, and it was causing a division in the church of Philippi. To the point where Paul wrote a letter uh, to the Philippians, and he asked one of the elders to intervene with these two women and bring reconciliation. So that they would find agreement in the Lord. In that church that was becoming rather divided because, you know, some people stood with that woman and some people stood with that woman. Paul says, I want your love to grow more and more for one another, but with wisdom and insight. The love of Christ is not wimpy, it's not weak. It's not sloppy agape. It's strong. And it's pure. And it's wise. I love the end of this. Now may the Lord of peace himself. That's who he is. He's a God of love. He's a Lord of peace. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way because they're in a stressful situation. They're dealing with problems within the church. They're dealing with problems out of the church. It's coming at them from all angles. And he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, all times. I think the Lord would delight if we go through very stressful times, heartbreaking times, and yet under that, there's still that peace. It's the same peace that Paul talked about. It passes all understanding. There's not a human definition for it. Because it's not natural, it comes from the Lord. The Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times and in every way. Can you believe that? To have peace in all times and in every way? It's got to come from the Lord. Doesn't mean you can't cry. Doesn't mean you can't have a heartbreak. Doesn't mean you can't be angry. Underneath it, peace. The Lord be with you all. I really like this uh, verse here. Isn't this cool? Look at this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. He says that a couple times in the New Testament. But look what he says next. This is a sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it's the way I write. I, I've missed that before. I'm writing this letter. How do you know I'm writing this letter? Because the, the, the man that wrote the book of Romans wasn't Paul. He had it dictated to another man that was with him. And it's a good possibility that he didn't write, um, Second Timothy because he was in chains in a prison, but Luke the doctor was with them. But this time he says, this is the sign, I write this greeting with my own hand, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. Maybe the word usage, maybe the way he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's something about his letters that can be detected. That's why some people, I think, don't, don't know if he wrote Hebrews, because there's illustrations and word usage that he doesn't give any other Letters. But then a lot of people have evidence that he did write that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And with that, why don't we pray? Lord, thank you. First of all, thank you for your calling in our life. We know that we never retire from our service to you. May we serve you, Lord, till our very last breath. On this side of heaven may we never become so lazy even lord if we become disabled or whatever way you choose to call us home may we always be fervent in our heart to talk about you and to share you and to read your word and to know you better and then specifically lord for people in our lives i think of a few myself where there's um, idleness and it's been a drain on family and friends, may we represent you. May we be gracious, generous, wise, strong, and clear like you were, Lord. Thank you for your word tonight, and I pray that you minister to anyone that needs these words tonight to be strong in what you want them to do. In Jesus' name, amen.